0: Hello and welcome to the Arms Control Poser podcast. My name is William Albert, Director of Strategy, Technology, and Arms Control at the International Institute for Strategic Studies in Berlin. I will be your host as we explore the world of arms control. On each podcast, I will interview the great and the good of the arms control community about a current event related to a treaty or agreement, past, present, or only proposed. Then together, we will go, hopefully, deep enough on the history and functioning of the agreement to help you make sense of it all. And, well, that's the idea anyway. This podcast is funded by the European Union Non-Proliferation and Disarmament Consortium. Now let's get underway. On today's episode of the Arms Control Poser podcast, our special guest is Dr. Hannah Notte. She is the director of the Eurasia Non-Proliferation Program at the James Martin Center for Non-Proliferation Studies and a senior associate in the Europe, Russia, and Eurasia Programme at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington, D.C. Today, we're going to talk about conflicts in the Middle East and an arms control effort that once was underway to try to address that and any lessons that we can come to for today. Hannah, thank you for being here today. Thanks
1: for inviting me, William.
0: That's not a problem, not a problem. So how would you think about the conflict that we're talking about? Like, How would you define the specific conflict? for which uh, there was a specific arms control remedy attempted back in the 1990s.
1: Right, William. I think if you look at the West-Russia context broadly, the West and the Soviet Union or the West and Russia over the last decades, you know, we have this very rich history of conventional and nuclear arms control mechanisms and treaties that were elaborated over decades. Now, we have lost most of them by today, but still those mechanisms provided stability for decades. And I think the fundamental problem to start with is that in the Middle East, uh, we've never had that. There have been long-standing obstacles to that kind of treaty-based formal arms control that we've seen uh, in other parts of the world. And I just wanna run you through that problem of why we've never got to that, that point in the Middle East quickly, because I think it's an important basis for us to look at efforts that try to remedy the problem. Uh, what you have in the Middle East is fundamentally you know, an absence of diplomatic relations between key states, Israel and Iran. You don't just have an asymmetry in, in capabilities that you want to rein in, but even a, a deniability. So Israel has pursued an, an opacity policy in the nuclear realm. And on the basis of that, you also have an asymmetry in obligations with Israel not being a party to the NPT. At the core of the problem in the Middle East, uh, you also have differences in the perceived purpose of arms control and, and the sequencing towards that purpose or the, the sort of the chicken and egg problem. What comes first? Are we starting with arms control in the region? And then we enhance regional security, or do we have to start with regional security and then we can build arms control on that? I think that fundamental tension has been, has been at the core of the problem. Then if you look at the, at the area of participation, you know, the kind of multilateral arms control that we've seen in the East-West context, uh, at least on the conventional side, that's also faced many hurdles. We haven't had really a process with inclusive participation in the region because it's been largely Israel's preference to pursue um, bilateral direct negotiations with regional parties and not to be tied down in international or or multilateral initiatives. And that's something that you see happening now in this WMD-free zone process that's convened under the auspices of the United Nations, where the Israelis are not at the table. Now, you've had lots of initiatives to try to remedy that problem, sub-regional initiatives to develop regional security in the Persian Gulf, for instance. But then the problem is that such processes are always exposed to attacks at every step of the way um, by by potential spoilers, because there's no guarantee that all states in the region will eventually join. Another problem that's compounded this already very complicated picture is uh, either the non-participation, non-ratification of uh, various international uh, agreements in the arms control space or also the violation of such agreements. So if you look, for example, at the NPT, Out of the six countries that have been established to have violated the NPT in the past, as confirmed by the IAEA, four of those states are from the Middle East region, Iraq, Iran, uh, Libya, and Syria. There's compliance concerns. You know, a country like Syria stands accused of uh, not being in compliance with its obligations under the Chemical Weapons Convention, with which Syria joined some 10 years ago. Um, And what you usually do in the arms control space is that you um, that compliance concerns elicit uh, calls for more intrusive uh, verification, but that has faced hurdles in the Middle East just because the distrust between the different players is so high. So this is these are just some of the legacy obstacles that have led us into a situation, William, where we've not really had. Uh, is sort of a, a comprehensive and inclusive process to develop arms control in the Middle East region. I could go on and on with some more recent problems to do with, uh, with the Iranian nuclear program, uh, the, the fact that uh, the JCPOA is, is in jeopardy, um, or the fact that we've now seen an, an erosion of, of arms control agreements globally, which of course also uh, raises question marks in, in the Middle East. But this is sort of the lay of the land that we have, a very difficult, convoluted problem set. And the, basically, um, the response that we're now seeing by various actors in the international community is to address just parts of the problem. Take like a, a little piece of the problem and try to address that, whether that's the WMD free zone process, which I already mentioned, but where Israel's not at the table or efforts through the Abraham Accords and the Nega Forum to build sort of regional security with a subset of actors. There's no comprehensive forum to address these issues at this time.
0: So can I ask you a couple of questions then? I mean, first of all, the JCPOA, the Joint Comprehensive Program of Action on Iran's nuclear program, uh, in a lot of trouble, Um, the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, or NPT, the nuclear weapon-free zone process. I want to ask you a little bit about that. But but my first question is, you mentioned that there, there's no multi, multilateral for, forum. There's not really multilateralism in the region. And it struck me that, yes, Israel tries um, some bilateral negotiations and has had some success, but why not multilateralism? Um, is, is that tied to the question of legitimacy and the desire for states not to confer legitimacy on each other by either being seen to negotiate or entering multilateral forums. And I guess that also ties back to the Middle East weapons of mass destruction free zone. So can you tell me a little bit about why there's not a push, why there's not a natural effort for multilateralism coming from the region itself? And Mm. uh, if you could tell me a little bit about the Middle East nuclear weapon free zone issue.
1: Yeah, so I think the resistance to being tied down in a multilateral process comes mostly from the Israeli side and it's rooted sort of in two things. First of all, this opacity policy that I mentioned, the non-admission to the possession of nuclear weapons, but also much more fundamentally, William, the fear by Israel to be automatically singled out and in a minority exposed to Arab states who will always be in the majority vis-a-vis Israel, and um, can therefore draw Israel on what it has called the slippery slope towards nuclear disarmament. So even in the Acres process, which we'll talk a, a little bit about uh, soon uh, on this episode, you know where the Israelis eventually participated, they were very concerned about being in this minority in, in a multilateral process. So you had certain procedural decisions taken in Acres at the outset. That mitigated these Israeli concerns. For, for example, the consensus rule that nothing could be decided in acres unless it was by consensus, and that nothing is agreed until everything is agreed. But I think this was sort of at the at the root. This is at the root of the problem of why we have no truly multilateral process. And then, of course, as I already mentioned, the absence of even diplomatic, formal diplomatic relations between states like Iran and Israel also make it very difficult for these parties to even sit together at the table.
0: And that gets the legitimacy question. Uh, countries just not seeing each other as legitimate. Well, you mentioned acres. I, I wonder, all right, first of all, I, I want to note that you and good friend of both of us, Dr. Hain Kane, uh, the director of Middle East Nonproliferation for the James Martin Center, you two were working together to record an oral history of acres. And so can you tell me a little bit about that project? First of all, If you could define what is ACRES, um, but uh, then, uh, you know, a little bit about the history of how that started. And uh, if if you could tell me what brought you to study this particular initiative.
1: Yeah, very happy to. Uh, ACRES, I suppose, is a somewhat obscure uh, episode in the history of arms control negotiations. Not everyone will be familiar with it. But this was a process that came out of the 1991 Madrid Conference. A multilateral working group, alongside four other multilateral. Oh,
0: so sorry. What was what was the what was the conference in Madrid in 1991?
1: Well, it was convened right after the end of the Cold War, um, by under President George H. W. Bush and and uh, Secretary of G- uh, State James Baker was materially involved in that effort to try to see whether peace could be fostered between Israel and those Arab states with which Israel didn't have peace at that time. So Jordan, Syria, Lebanon, and then of course the Palestinians. So to basically move the Israeli-Palestinian conflict forward. So it was a big conference. Um, Most regional states were involved in it. And as a result, these multilateral working groups were established uh, on economic development, on water, on the refugee problem, on the environment. And the final working group was called ACRES on arms control and regional security that process became possible william because at that time so to say the stars aligned uh, geopolitically speaking you know you had the end of the cold war and the collapse of of the soviet union and with that a sort of overwhelming display of of american power also in in the first gulf war so us leadership was at an all time high i would say uh, so the Americans were very well positioned to do such a heavy lift diplomatically to get all these different layers around the table. Um, the Americans had the leverage to get a somewhat reluctant Israel to the table. Uh, we you know we already talked about the fact that Israel wasn't thrilled to be involved in, in a multilateral process on arms control and regional security. And there had been some other positive developments, uh, some advances in the non-proliferation space, you know, with negotiations towards the chemical weapons convention, for example, that generated some optimism that something could done, but then another thing I want to mention here is that, you know, with the the first Gulf War, that had also brought home to the region, the the Middle East region that we're talking about here, the fact that there was a real prospect of uh, WMD use in an armed conflict which sort of elevated the focus of everyone on arms control. So these various factors sort of came together to make ACRES possible 30 years ago um, and, and established this con- comprehensive uh, process that ran for a number of years. I, I'm, I'm so very happy to talk you through what, actu- what ACRES then actually was. But yeah, you're also right to say that Hen and I a number of years ago decided to pursue this oral history on the, on the process because no official record was taken during ACRES. You know, it was very important to the parties to keep this process very informal. Um, and, you know, as we moved a few years ago into the WMD-free zone process, which you already mentioned, it felt almost, you know, it felt ludicrous and almost sort of criminal not to have a sort of public record and rich analysis on the, on the process, on the one very comprehensive process 30 years ago, uh, where a lot of regional players were involved in, in, in uh, regional negotiation. I mean, of course, a lot of people have written on acres. You know, even those who participated in it, and there have been good studies written on acres over over the last three decades. But there's been no comprehensive account uh, of all the different parties that were involved. And so what we did is we conducted interviews with about forty individuals who participated directly in ACRES, so from the United States, which was the co-gavel holder of the process, but then also the most important regional uh, delegations. So Israel, Egypt, Jordan, some of the Gulf states, then there were some external players involved in ACRES to shepherd some of the working groups, like the Canadians, the Dutch, the Turks, the Australians. So we we interviewed a good sort of cross-section of, of delegates who participated in ACRES to really capture um, their views. We also brought some of them together in a roundtable, I believe at the end of 2021, so that they would revisit jointly what transpired 30 years ago and reflect on some of the lessons learned. We also collected some archival uh, documents related to the process. And we did all of this together with our partner. Um, the history and public policy program at the Wilson Center. And so all of this material that I just mentioned is actually captured in their their digital archive uh, on Acres.
0: That's great. I I love the Wilson Center. Their stuff on the Cold War, all the documentation that they pulled together is just extraordinary. So that seems like a natural place to to bring this. Was it Was it your idea? Was it you and Hen came up with this? Or did someone else approach you and say, this would be a good idea?
1: I must be completely frank with you here, William. So uh, this all happened at the time when I I joined uh, CNS, which is the partner organization of the, of the Vienna Center that's for which I now work Center for
0: Liberation Studies CNS
1: exactly the James Martin Center that's right and so uh, this was the first project i undertook with Gen when i joined and she this was already in the works by the time i arrived chen uh, my colleague she's someone who's worked on arms control in the middle east for her entire career uh, on the zone process and so she had been trying to figure out this project for for a number of years um, and got everything in place. That's great. So you'll have to you'll have to uh, talk to her to get the, perhaps the full story. No, I, will, I will.
0: I will. I will. I no, will. Oh, but it's really interesting. So, so the the context of this then it's George H. W. Bush and James Baker themselves realizing that you know with the end of the Cold War this is a historic opportunity. So I assume at this point is it is it Yeltsin or is it Gorbachev still at the very uh, outset of the of the process?
1: At the very outset of the process, I think the. First plenaries and acres happen in, oh, I guess it's really right about around the time when uh, the end of the Soviet Union, which I suppose Gorbachev announces in December 1991. And I think the first plenary of acres convenes literally in January 1992, though I would have to go back and check that. So it's really a time when things are very much in in flux in in the Soviet Union, which then or then the Russian uh, Federation. And, you know, William, uh, Russia was then made co-gavel holder of the whole process uh, together with the United States. But if you talk to people who were involved in the process at the time from the American delegation or the regionals, you know, they felt that that was important, that Russia was sort of. Involved, um, it was important for a lot of the Soviet Union sort of legacy Arab partners because, of course, the United States was perceived to be in close with Israel, and so for the Arabs, it was important to have Russia. But but the Russians were not heavily involved, if if we're being frank, in that process as it then played out in the early '90s, just because there was so much going on sure. um, with the with the with the end of the Soviet Union and then the early '90s in Russia.
0: Right, right. Yeah, we're talking about. The START treaty, the CFE treaty, the collapse of the Soviet military, the repatriation of nuclear uh, weapons—that process of trying to pry them out of Eastern Europe. Yeah, I mean, that's a. I imagine they didn't have a lot of uh, (laughs) diplomatic. Yeah, yeah. So, but did they? they have a, a point person? Was was their foreign minister involved, or, or did they name someone, or was it just a rotating cast of characters, like whoever was available to help with the process? No,
1: look, on, on most sides there were kind of key individuals who were involved uh, sort of th- throughout the process, and the same was the case uh, on the Russian side. Now, I will tell you frankly, William, that very much to my grievance, Russia was one of the delegations that we, where we didn't manage to interview someone for this oral history. Some of the key individuals had un- already, unfortunately, passed away uh, by the point that we started this oral history. And then a few others whom we approached, I mean, we, we really tried, um, declined to be, to be interviewed for this oral history, either um, because these are individuals who are still in positions in the foreign ministry today. And so there was perhaps a, a reluctance to participate in something like this. Or there were individuals who felt that they could not speak sufficiently to the to the Akers process, because, you know, what what happened, William, is that Akers plenary meetings happened between Washington and Moscow, alternating. And so, for the plenaries that happened in Moscow in the early 90s, there would be individuals in the broader arms control crowd, uh, foreign ministry, but also experts who would participate. But some of those individuals were just involved in one or two acres meetings, not in the whole process. And so, some of those felt sort of 30 years on that they had not been sort of sufficiently involved in to have. Enough recollection to really speak to the substance of the process. Um, and can
0: I ask you some? So, I mean, was it uh, someone like Roland Timurbayev involved? Was Sasha Grushko involved? Was uh, Mikhail Ulyanov or um, Anatoly Antonov involved? Like any of the big, uh, any of the bigwigs that we know today in
1: some of the big names were involved someone like uh, Ambassador Berdanikov, for instance. Some of these people pop up on the on the lists if you sort of go through the Moscow meetings uh, but again, you know um, they might have been involved in just one or, or two meetings. you know if you look at a plenary list there would be 10 12 people from a, from from a country delegation um, but but sort of not a, not a heavy involvement in the process.
0: So, so how would you describe then the, in, what are the initial aims? What, you know, what did, what did Bush and Baker like set out exactly to do? And how did they frame us? How did they, how did they set this up to succeed? Yeah. You mentioned they had yeah. different working groups or how, how did this work? I and mean, right. were going back and forth between, between DC and, uh, Moscow. Moscow initially.
1: Yeah, no, this is and- where it gets a bit complicated so there or me. was
0: it just just yeah can you tell me some more of the I love the details here how did how did this all work
1: yeah okay mm-hmm. so acres basically played out between 1991 and 1995 so that gives you a sense of the time frame that we're talking yeah. about uh, 13 arab states were involved israel a Palestinian delegation, which was initially part of a joint Jordanian Palestinian delegation, and then the United States and Russia as these co-gabble holders and a number of extra regional states, which I already mentioned, which sort of helped lead the process. In that whole time frame, William, we had about 40 acres uh, meetings, wow. uh, both plenaries and that then what was called sort of intersessional meetings. Uh, initially, the plenaries were outside the region, Washington and Moscow but later they were moved into the region. So you had um, plenaries in Tunisia and Qatar, for example. Uh, Just a quick word on participation because it's really important. Syria and Lebanon were invited to join the process, but they decided not to participate because they didn't want to appear to be normalizing with Israel before the resolution of their outstanding bilateral issues. Uh, Iran, Iraq, and Libya, we're not invited to to join the process because at that time in the early 90s, it was considered, and I'm quoting from one of the interviews here, a bridge too far to have these three countries um, at the table.
0: And that's a good place for a break. We're going to come back in just a second with Hannah Nota on the Arms Control Poser podcast.
1: What the United States set out to do, you asked about sort of what Bush and Baker had in mind, they really wanted ACRES, and remember, ACRES is one of five multilateral working groups, and it's supposed to complement a broader peace process between Israel and Arab states and Israel and and the Palestinians. They wanted this ACRES working group to be supportive of and to uh, complement these bilateral processes that also came out of Madrid. So you have the bilaterals coming out of Madrid, Israel still negotiating with the Syrians, with the Jordanians, with the Palestinians, and these multilaterals. And the U.S. saw the multilaterals as, quite frankly, somewhat subordinate to the to the bilaterals. So they thought this would open up a long term process in acres in which regional parties would sort of over time develop a shared vision for regional security, build relationships, reduce tensions, uh, develop maybe some, uh, you know, confidence building measures, start having a conversation on those issues. Uh, But the main game here, you know, was the, was the bilateral process between Israel uh, and the Arabs. And this is where we sort of get a bit into the problem here with Acres, um, because different parties had different goals that they pursued in this process. I just laid out to you what the Americans were hoping to get out of it. For Egypt, the objective in Akers was very much to achieve Israel's nuclear disarmament and uh, and the parity and obligation. So for the Israelis to eventually join the NPT, that was Egypt's primary goal entering the process. For Israel, you know, Israel was happy to make progress towards regional security. You know, help establish things. CBM's confidence building measures that would help prevent unintentional conflict in the region, um, but they didn't want to give other states an opportunity to push Israel on this slippery slope regarding discussions on nuclear disarmament. And then if you look at some of the other states that were involved, Jordan or especially some of the Gulf states, they also saw the bilaterals, the conflict with Israel as the main game and they wanted acres to be sort of supportive uh, to that. Though a state, a state like Jordan, to be fair, really developed a greater interest in, in arms control and regional security over time. But so states came with these uh, different sets of interests into the process. Um, and what the United States, together with Russia, as the sort of co-gavel holder did at the beginning, is take certain sort of decisions on procedure on the process to, to get this off the ground. And maybe I'll just quickly mention those because they're they're fairly interesting. So initially in these plenaries in Moscow and Washington, um, they adopted a sort of seminar type approach to bring in outsiders to talk about arms control experiences in the East West context during the Cold War, sort of a somewhat educational approach to educate folks in the region, in the Middle East region on how arms control was done elsewhere. Um, I already mentioned that the process was kept totally informal with no official record taken. The consensus rule was adopted. The nothing is agreed until everything is agreed rule was adopted. And then, William, um, there was one very important decision taken, um, mm-hmm. I think, around 1993. So a little bit later into the process to split the negotiation substance into what was called two baskets, Um, a conceptual basket where people would talk about sort of the general principles and norms that would guide regional security, the long-term objectives, declaratory measures, uh, how you define the region for the purpose of arms control, all of that. And then an operational basket in which folks actually got down to the sort of nitty-gritty details of some of the technical confidence building measures on maritime issues on the exchange of military information, uh, the establishment of regional uh, communications network, and also regional security center. And actually, once those technical confidence building measures were being worked out in in these working groups, you didn't just have people from the different foreign ministries around the table. No, you had like military officers and experts who really could talk about maritime CBMs. and of course the hope was with this with these two baskets that progress on some of these technical confidence building measures conventional confidence building measures wouldn't be held up by you know the, the big problem in the room the elephant in the room which was this you know a push by Egypt to talk about Israel's uh, Israel's nuclear weapons
0: yeah so keep it technical keep it operational
1: that's really that's right.
0: so this is really fascinating so Who did they bring in as experts to brief the groups? Were these diplomats who had negotiated other agreements? Were these the Finns to talk about the Helsinki process? Is that, or is that the role you were talking about with the externals, um, Canada, Turkey, Australia and the Netherlands?
1: Yeah. So um, actually with these external states, uh, a specific state was given the responsibility to be a shepherd on a specific issue. So um I, you know, I, I don't exactly know why precisely which state was chosen for which issue, but but I can tell you who they were. So the Canadians took the lead on maritime issues, search and rescue and, and things like that. And so for example, one of the one of the people I interviewed for the oral history was a former Canadian naval officer who could really speak to to those kinds of negotiations. the, uh, the uh, discussions on sort of pre-notification of certain military activities, that working group was led by the Turks. Huh. The Netherlands took the lead on uh, establishing a regional communication network, and then uh, the Australians uh, on the regional security center. So, um, and of course, the United States was sort of, I think, very much involved in in all of this, sort of over overseeing the process together with Russia.
0: Wow, I wouldn't. Wow, I would not have guessed that kind of breakout. That's really interesting. So. Canada on maritime, Turkey on notifications, Netherlands on regional communication system, and Australia on a regional security center. And these are all, I mean, obviously, uh, there you go. Those, apart from the air domain, those are the actual building blocks that you would think of for the Middle East. May I ask, why wasn't aviation Why is it just maritime?
1: That's a a very good question. Um, I don't know, quite frankly, it it just wasn't part uh, of what was being discussed at the time. I mean, there were a number of things um, that were not that were really not part of the negotiation substance in acres. If we think about the Middle East today, for example, missiles and delivery systems seems to be a pretty big deal. Right. If we want to talk about enhancing regional security and arms control. But delivery systems are really only sort of tangentially discussed in, in on some of these CBMs. It wasn't seen as the, as the major issue to focus on at the time. Okay,
0: and um, you mentioned before, so did any of this have to do with, was this linked to, were there discussions on the Middle East weapons of mass destruction free zone? Or was that held completely separate from these talks?
1: You no, know, this was not, um, the WMD free zone didn't, you know, exist as a process really at the time. I mean, some suggestions on a nuclear weapons-free zone had been, you know, I think first made even in the 1970s or 1980s. Um, um, but but really the WMD-free zone process as something that is pushed uh, by especially Egypt and some of the Arab states it actually comes up with the, with the 1995 Review and Extension Conference of the NPT, William. Gosh. So this is sort of, as Acres is floundering, actually, and actually, I would say th- that resolution, which then set up uh, a push for a WMD-free zone process and the demise of Acres, the, the two stories here are linked. Um, so, so just to sort of uh, give a little bit of historical background here to our listeners, um, in 1995, there was a review conference of uh, the NPT, Uh, in which a decision was supposed to be taken on an indefinite extension of the NPT. And that was adopted without a vote and made possible because the Arabs were given a a resolution on the WMD free zone. And that resolution, which was co-sponsored at that time by the United States, the United Kingdom and Russia, called for the establishment of, I quote, an effectively verifiable Middle East zone free of nuclear, chemical and biological weapons and their delivery systems. And, um, you know, Egypt in particular was pushing for that at the time, partially because they felt that they were not getting anywhere with Israel on the nuclear question as part of the ACRES process. So by that time that we get to that NPT conference, ACRES has been running for a number of years and Egypt had grown increasingly frustrated with the process because Egypt felt that Uh, Progress was being made on these operational issues, on these confidence building measures in the maritime, on the uh, military notifications, all the all the stuff that we just talked about. Progress was being made on that. But Egypt felt that Israel was stalling on the elephant in the room. It was not willing to have a conversation on its nuclear arsenal. And so this is how you get to this resolution in 1995 on the WMB free zone. And then, of course, you know, if we consider that history, no process or no conference on the zone was convened, even though there were several action plans adopted, for example, by the 2010 NPT review conference. And long story short, at some point, I think the Arabs got so frustrated with a lack of progress on this file that they submitted a decision to the UN General Assembly in 2018 uh, to entrust the UN Secretary General with convening a a, a process, a conference on the WMD-free zone in the Middle East. And that gave rise to a process that we we are now with since November 2019. That's when the first conference on on the WMD-free zone was convened. And I believe we've now had three conferences. So we have this process on the zone under UN auspices, but importantly, Israel is not part of that process. Uh, it's not sitting at, at the table. But right. so this is this is sort of where the stories of acres and the story of the WMD-free zone, uh, sort of where they both sort of in, uh, originated or where the, the two destinies sort of collided in 1995.
0: I see. I see. Now, that's really interesting. So So Egypt was actually irritated along with some of the Arab states because progress was being made. So that's really interesting. Can you tell me more about what was the specific progress? What did what did this what did Acres achieve? Did they come up with the the text for different types of agreements like ICS and things like that or tell me yeah. Yeah, tell me more.
1: Yeah. Um well, on the achievements, yes, happy to talk about some of those specifics, but I think there's also some broader achievements which are important to to sort yeah. of recognize today. But yes, in these working groups, some of these CBM agreements were sort of Concluded and operationally finalized. But importantly, William, none of them were ever adopted because remember, nothing's agreed until everything's agreed. But from what I understand, you know, the, this idea for a regional security center, which would be located in Jordan and have two affiliated institutions in Qatar and Tunisia, that was finalized on paper, the communications network, some procedures uh, for, for um, exchange of military information. Um, a number of maritime CBMs that was all written down and sort of um, agreed but it was never adopted because then acres floundered but I want to tell you a little anecdote where um, someone um, whom I interviewed I won't say sort of what nationality um, but he made the case to me and he was a a naval officer involved in some of these these, uh, negotiations he felt that The fact that these things had been worked out and agreed had a meaningful impact, uh, even though it was never formally implemented. And he told me of this Israeli admiral who said at one of the last meetings related to maritime CBMs, and I quote this Israeli admiral now, when I go home, I'm going to instruct all of my commanding officers of ships and aircraft to read this thing and comply with it. I'm not saying it's official. I'm not asking any of you to do the same. I'm just telling you that if one of your vessels comes across one of ours and you choose to use these signals, our guys will know what you're talking about. Mm. Now, this is just one anecdote, and I think it's extremely difficult to know how widely this was applied and how widely these these dormant cbms that were never really officially put into implementation were really implemented in the region and certainly now we're sort of 30 years on you know and i think a lot of folks don't even know that these things were agreed at some point and that these papers might still you know be lying around in 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 uh, in the foreign ministries of of those states Um, but this this you know this just goes to say that um Things perhaps did change, um, even though these things were not formally implemented
0: That's a really big deal. Um, so, so what do you think the big lessons are for today from the acres process? What, what, what have we learned?
1: Um, let me point out a, a, a couple of broad things here and, you know, I, I just really want to emphasize that these don't just reflect my, my personal opinion, they come out of these like 40 conversations that I led with, with people who were really intimately involved in the process. Uh, one important lesson that came out of this is participation and how important inclusive participation is. Yes, it was considered a bridge too far to have Iran, Iraq and Libya at the table at the time. But at the same time, everyone recognized that this was really problematic, that these states were not involved. You know, to come back to the idea of spoilers, if you create a process today and the Iranians are out in the cold, you know, it's just really difficult to make um to, to make an all-encompassing uh, sort of uh, progress in the region. Another broad idea um, that came out of this was that personalities really matter. So across the board, William, the sense was that uh, different countries brought their A-teams into Acres, like really like heavy-hitting individuals who knew what they were talking about who had the political cloud back in their capitals and who were really invested in in the process. And that was considered actually really, really important. Um, Location mattered. So the fact that this was a process that was perhaps initially convened in Washington and Moscow, but then increasingly moved into the region, gave a greater stake to these regional states, uh, you know, made them more invested in actually seeing this succeed. Um, I think one of the biggest lessons for me, um, having sort of studied this process, is the idea that incrementalism is no panacea. So, you know, we had this idea in Acres that through the op- this operational basket, you could work step by step on some of these technical CBMs to, to build trust. But there was an absence of political will, William, in the process to really bridge the the key differences on 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 some of the key issues, and 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 you know that ev- eventually led to the downfall of the process. So I think current or future processes will risk producing similar results, un- unless they really address this fundamental reality. And the final thing I want to say here is a, um, a, a point about outside leverage. So for Acres the role of the United States was seen as absolutely key, you know, this great power, kicking off the process and being heavily involved. And actually, once you had a transition from the Bush to the Clinton administration, uh, some people would argue that uh, there was a bit of a loss of interest by the Clinton administration in the process, and that was considered uh, problematic. Um, but certainly everyone thought that the U.S. played really an outsized role in this process. And as I mentioned, Russia was also sort of considered important, which sort of, I guess, gets us to a broader question of, in terms of where we are today and whether the current geopolitical uh, configuration and what we're now seeing with the uh, Russia's war against Ukraine, and a reduced willingness of, of, of great powers to, to jointly work together on non-proliferation and perhaps arms control in other regions, what that means for, for a process in the Middle East going forward. Because I think, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but we have this conventional wisdom perhaps that you know, the Middle East needs outsiders with real leverage, uh, needs these external powers. Um, the, the region cannot do arms control uh, on its own. Um, this was certainly true during acres, but perhaps also uh, on on other issues. And so the question to me is: Well, will the United States, Russia, have any bandwidth to do a sort of heavy diplomatic lift uh, anytime soon? I don't see that. And of course, will they have the political will to insulate, you know, situation in the Middle East from their broader confrontation? And quite frankly, uh, on the Russian side, I don't see that willingness either. And then that then begs the question whether the region on its own could, could do a um, um, comprehensive process like this, which again, we're not seeing at the time, at this time, we're just seeing sort of piecemeal efforts through the Abraham Accords and through the zone process, but nothing truly comprehensive.
0: You know, uh, wow. For me, I guess one of the things that's most interesting about this is that there's text somewhere sitting there. So, you know, there's the U.S.-Soviet agreement from 1972 on the avoidance of hazardous incidents on and over the high seas. Because in the U.S. instruction order for implementing the INCSI, it actually says that the U.S. will use this on approach with any military aircraft or ships because other countries may just be using the norms and the emergency channel and the special codes. So it strikes me that Israel might actually be implementing the INCSI in the region as a security building measure. And it'd be really interesting to know if A, other states in the region are doing that, or B, just to dust all this stuff off, put it together as a proposal and slap it on the table. I mean, I get that countries in the region were irritated that they didn't get everything that they wanted, but this even by itself, I've been advocating the creation of regional risk reduction centers, a regional comms system, and an INCSEE system, Mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, some kind of basic exchange of military information. And it sounds like they agreed on that. They just never implemented it. So why not just, you know, find the actual text, dust it off, slap it on the table and say, hey, guys, don't you think this is a good idea? And see what happens.
1: Right. William, I think this was partially the purpose with this oral history and this whole project to actually draw attention to the fact that all this was done in the early 90s. I mean, I think even a lot of people in, in our space, you know, people who work on arms control and nonproliferation... To a lot of them, Acres is somewhat of an obscure sort of anecdote. You know, 30 years ago, people ha- have heard of it, but they don't actually know uh, what transpired. And actually a lot transpired. You know, one of one of the Egyptians I, I interviewed, he's, he said that he still, when he talks to students now, you know, 30 years on, he uses acres as an episode to sh- show that the Middle East at one point almost made it. You know, it went really far in, an, in a... Multilateral uh, arms control process, and there are all these things that were achieved. It's just that almost no one's aware of it today, and so we just have to draw attention to the fact that there is this repository of uh, things that were worked out and agreed. Wow!
0: I mean, it's just it's just absolutely fascinating, um, and I do feel like this is something that needs more attention. Um, are there other ways to gain attention from this? I mean, I, you know, I hate to say it, but. Kind of saying, okay, we did this oral history project is great, but what about a new initiative to sort of clean this up, put the actual proposals on the table, and, you know, push them forward in some context, either in the UN or try to restart multilateralism here on this topic? I mean, this is hot stuff. I really I really like this.
1: Sure. I mean, I agree with you that now that we have uh, also efforts by the United States to push um, there is, I think, initiatives to enhance regional security through the NEGA Forum, which is this, you know, initiative that came out of, of the Abraham Accords or involved certain states involved in the Abraham Accords, um, and that has a regional security working group, among others. You know, I, I would be surprised if there was an interest on the part of the administration to look, uh, you know, at what what actually transpired in Acres and what was, what was being agreed. Um, I think that's sort of one pathway through the regional security working group in the NEGA forum. And then, yeah, I mean, on, on the, for the zone process, it's also important, you know, I mean, and we're trying to raise awareness of this. So last summer, for example, uh, during the NPT review conference in New York, there was a side event on the WMD free zone. And I spoke about acres, uh, you know, I, I gave my little acres pitch on what the process was and what it achieved. Um, so to have that sort of cross fertilization or sort of make the WMD free zone community, broadly speaking, very much aware of acres and, and what worked and what didn't work and why and sort of what's around in terms of of, of material. But, um, but sure, there, there should be more of such efforts. I very much agree with That's you.
0: That's fantastic. Well, so, I mean, in short, the main takeaway is that with some push some agreement between great powers and be really interesting to see maybe with China's interest in diplomacy in the region and a shared interest between the US and China on perhaps a shared interest on stability in a region like the Middle East. That could be helpful. I'm not sure Russia wants to see a lot of stability right now. I think they kind of seem to be sowing chaos and they seem to be sort of enjoying more of a spoiler role in the world these days. Um, But maybe there is some, maybe there's something here. Hannah. What you've done has been amazing and I hope more people pay attention to it and let's see what happens. Well, that about wraps it up for part one of the podcast. Part two, the section where I ask Hannah about her career and how she got to be so brilliant will come up in just a second. Thanks for sticking around. Welcome to the bonus material for today's podcast, episode four on Middle East Regional Security and the Acres Project. I'm here in the bonus with Dr. Hannah Nota to ask her some questions about her career and who she is and how she got here and all that kind of stuff. So let's get into it. So where were you born? Where are you from?
1: Okay. um, I was born in Trier in Germany. It's a Fairly small town in the west of Germany, right at the border to Luxembourg and France. And some people know it because Karl Marx was born in Trier, and it also claims to be the oldest uh, city in Germany. We have the Porta Nigra, um, built by the Romans. Um, That's where I'm from. That's where I grew up until I was 19. And uh, then I went abroad, Um, studied in the UK, (laughs) undergraduate, master's, uh, PhD, eventually. Lived in 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 Moscow and Beirut for some time, and ended up in Berlin, where I've been for the last five years.
0: Where where did you study? Uh,
1: I did, and what did right? I did my undergraduate at Cambridge in social and political sciences, so that was sort of you know political science, sociology, a bit of anthropology, which I didn't know what it was until I until I got to Ah, Cambridge, ah, ah, ah. and then my uh, masters and doctorate were in international relations at at Oxford University.
0: Oh, okay. Wow. Wow. wow! wow. And so uh, after school, what'd you do next?
1: So um, by the point that I was finishing the PhD um, in 2017, I had already taken a year out, William, to spend a year in Moscow in 2015, 2016 on a fellowship uh, to sort of get a little bit of a break from the PhD and be in Russia. I mean, My PhD was on Russia's foreign policy in the Middle East. So um, I did that for a year, was affiliated with two think tanks in Moscow. Um, and, uh, by the point I came back to Oxford after that fellowship, I was sort of more ready to be out in the field. I didn't want to be back in Oxford. So I actually moved to Beirut to finish my PhD from there. I wrote it up in late 2017. And then I joined a small NGO, um, which works on conflict, uh, mediation and informal diplomacy in the middle East. And I worked with them for two years. Um, they were heavily working on the Syrian conflict, but didn't have a person to kind of um, help with their systematic engagement of Russia. And this is of course, after Russia had intervened in the war in Syria. So I did that work for two years based initially out of Beirut and then out of Berlin. And then I joined uh, CNS, the James Martin center. And then it's, um, sister organization the vcdnp I suppose in uh, in late 2020 so I've, I've been doing that job now for for two and a half years
0: wow 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 wow. so wait so how did so how did you get into studying the conflicts like what what I mean you're studying anthropology and things yeah. like that and how how do you decide okay you know what it really i'd be really good as if I got knee-deep in you know conflicts in Syria and mm. all kinds of stuff like that
1: yeah. So to be honest, William, I'm not one of those people who've known like all along that Russia in the Middle East or let alone arms control and non-proliferation is what I want to end up working on. So my undergrad was very sort of broad and I did, you know, political thought and I was studying, I don't know, um, 18th century, 19th century philosophy and, you know, sociology and anthropology. And actually then, sorry, I forgot to mention this. I did work for Goldman Sachs in London for two years as a research analyst. I was doing like financial markets and it's really only from my master's onwards. So uh, I suppose um, 10 years ago that I, I, I started working more on Russia and the Middle East, you know, I had, I had learned Russian in school. Uh, back when I was a teenager a little bit. And so I had this fascination with the Russian language. I grew up as a classical violinist, wanted to study music, actually, professionally for a long time and was sort of playing Russian music. So there was this fascination coming from Russian language and music. uh, And I sort of kept that going. I, I kept studying Russian on the side, but it's really just from my masters that I gravitated more towards the field of international politics um, and then, in particular, Russia and the Middle East, which were sort of two parallel interests of mine. And at some point, I thought I should bring them together because it struck me. And this is, uh, you know, around 2013, 2014, so a year before Russia intervened in the Syrian conflict. It struck me that there were very few people out there who were looking at Russia in the Middle East. So the nexus between those two uh, regions. And so I start. I decided to to uh, to go into that direction.
0: So why, why did you walk away from Goldman Sachs?
1: Well, um, I had uh, two amazing years at Goldman Sachs, um, because I was, um, not someone who had studied finance or economics or anything like that before. Let me tell you, the learning curve was steep for me in those two years. Uh, and I, I worked with some incredibly bright people. The place was very fast paced. it was absolutely fascinating. But fundamentally, I didn't want to work on international markets. I always had this passion for international politics. You know, I would be one of those people coming into the office at 6.30 or seven in the morning, and rather than checking like the latest stock markets and sort of what was going on in the markets, I would always be drawn to the the politics section, you know, and sort of read what was going on in international politics. So I, I sort of knew that all along that probably that passion would compel me to move back into the the more political space and that's then why after two years I said okay I had a really good time here but now it's time to to do a master's in international politics and and move on and I have I have no regrets uh, wow. doing
0: that wow um so did you I mean was there after your master's degree so specifically what happened how did you exactly get into it like was there a job opening did they did they just See your work as a master's student and take you directly in as a fellow. Like how did how did that happen? Where exactly? Like how? I mean, from Goldman Sachs to the masters to being the dazzling professional that you are today.
1: Ah, okay. So, well, after the masters, I did the the PhD at Oxford. Right. And so, basically, what happened, William, is that the PhD was on Russia Middle East relations broadly, mm-hmm. but it just so happened that two of my case studies had something to do with arms control and non-proliferation. I was looking at Russia's role in Syria's chemical disarmament in 2013, 2014. That was one of my case studies. And I looked at Russia's role on the Iranian nuclear dossier, in particular, Russia's role in in negotiating UN Security Council Resolution 1929 in 2010. That just so happened. It wasn't because at the time I thought, oh, at one point in my career I want to work in the arms control and non-proliferation space. They just were two suitable case studies for what I was trying to achieve with the PhD. But it meant that I had some exposure to the space that I'm now working in. And so what bas- what actually happened is that after the PhD, I was working in, you know, in mediation and, and, and for this NGO and still doing Russia and Middle East. Um, I went to Monterey, California to um, to participate in a, in a symposium on Russia, and I was sort of giving the lecture on Russia-Middle East relations, and that's where I met Bill Potter, who is the head oh. of uh, CNS of the James Martin Center, and he realized that I had this Russia-Middle East nexus, but also had done some work on the pertinent sort of arms control and non-proliferation issues, and through that connection, we established a, a conversation, and that sort of eventually led me to the CNS family and then to the BCDNP. Wow. So I would say, you know, I'm a quite, I'm someone who transitioned fairly late or or only fairly recently into the arms control and non-proliferation space because I was more of a generalist before. And it felt a bit daunting initially because, you know, I would be surrounded by people who had taken master's degrees and um, on, on those issues who had studied the NPT regime and, Knew what all these organizations are doing from CTBT to i don't know what and had all this you know regime specific sometimes technical knowledge and of course i didn't bring any of that to the table at the outset and so i thought initially it's a bit daunting you know can i can i actually do this and then you sort of learn on the job as you start working on the issues you you know you so again i would say another steep learning curve <laughs> over the last Yes. After the initial Goldman Sachs learning curve.
0: But still marrying up a personal interest and then studying something very, very practical and current and I mean, a hot topic. And then, you know, just getting yourself in into the into the field so that you're briefing in front of people and a bit of so a bit of personal interest, plus a little bit of luck, plus just um, the courage, really, to put yourself out there and to talk to people who. You know have this intimidating level of knowledge but you're you you know what you know and you're willing to talk about it that's that strikes me as an excellent uh
1: recipe to get you in there no it's true and perhaps in that sense now that we're sort of chatting about my past experience you know the experience at at goldman did help because as a really very junior uh analyst there um it so happened that sometimes i was sent to germany i mean i was in the london office but we had german clients um you know individuals with a lot of assets who were interested in our investment strategy and our research ideas Uh, and i would go and brief them and really sit as someone aged 22 or 23 in a room with very high-powered individuals needing to brief for an hour and ask and be asked hard questions and you know it, it was really tough sometimes and quite a sort of daunting challenges at times challenge at times and so i think perhaps that experience even though the the subject matter was completely different from what we're talking about today sort of steeled me a little bit for for that kind of uh, you know for that part of the job which is sort of briefing and um being asked the hard questions
0: Okay. So I have two final questions for you. One, is there any advice you would give yourself in the past in terms of the path, maybe something you wish you had done differently sooner, later, or would you say just, you know, go for it. You're doing great. And then number two, um, you know, is there any advice that you'd give to a listener out there who wants to get into this field?
1: Yeah. I think in terms of what I wish maybe I had done sooner is, um, I, I sort of knew all along, even as I was as I was embarking on the masters and then the PhD, I had a fairly good sense that I wasn't interested in a career in academia, that I was going to want to sort of be out there in a think tank in a sort of more public policy facing um, uh, job. And so I wish I had started even earlier writing op eds and trying to make a bit of a name for myself and having a good piece, you know, not all the time, but you know, maybe every six months. Um, out there so that people already would know who I am. Uh, I, I feel like I start, I mean, of course I'm doing that now and I, I eventually started doing that, but I wish I had started it even earlier, even during my, my PhD. Um, in terms of what I would also based on my own experience, um, advise others is, is, um, um, perhaps, and th- this might sound fairly general William, but I think. We, we are in a space that is highly competitive and that has a lot of good people. And so I think it's really important for everyone to ask themselves the question, what really makes them different and what they bring to the table that others don't, and then really hone in on that competitive advantage. So I enjoy learning languages. I really enjoy it greatly. And I had Russian from school. And at some point I decided to really go for Arabic because I thought that Having a combination of Russian and Arabic would provide me with a competitive advantage over peers. Wow. And so I really went for that. I invested a lot of time and energy during my PhD to learn Arabic from, from zero, you wow. know, to up to a level where I can use it sort of professionally. And for others, they, it might not be language, it might be another very specialized skill, whether it's looking at satellite images or so some more technical uh, stuff. But I think. It's really good to 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 develop some some competitive advantage in a, in a sort of specialized uh, uh, um, area that would be that would be my advice.
0: I think that is fantastic advice and we will leave it there. Dr. Hananota, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for chatting with us. Thank you for sharing about yourself thank and you some for excellent me. advice there for everyone. Thank you. My thanks once again to the European Union Non-Proliferation and Disarmament Consortium for funding this podcast. And my special thanks to B. Aubrey Freeman, good friend of mine who composes all of our fantastic music. I urge you to follow him on Bandcamp. He does great stuff. Until next time, this has been William Albert from the International Institute for Strategic Studies in Berlin. Thanks for coming by. See you next time.
1: I repeat again.
0: Again, I repeat again.
1: I repeat again.